0: My uh, two uh, oldest sons were in the school cross country a little while ago and they went and they did lots and lots of training. And uh, I've actually run the school cross country here a few times and there's a brutal part of this school cross country. There's a, there's a hill just, you, you guys have done it know what I'm talking about, there's a hill just over the back here that you've got to run up which is really, really steep, right? And, uh, and then once you get up the top there, there's a slight incline and then a little bit of a decline, right? And just as you get to the bottom of the decline, just over here, you're just starting to get your breath back and then there's a long hill that goes right up, you guys know what I'm talking about? Right up onto the oval, right? Now my boys training, and I thought, I, I need to encourage my boys, right? So I just thought, I need to get to the point that's the hardest bit, alright? Because I want to get in the bit where the hardest bit is and I want to encourage them to keep going, alright? Now, I got over there in the dip just before the, the long haul up onto the oval, all right? And my boys are coming through, right? Now, if I yelled out something like this to my sons, do you think this would work? And say, persevere, Jordan. <laughs> all right? Would that work? Persevere, Caleb. Well, they'd just go, what? what? You know, and the probably parents would be looking at me, So, what was I doing? I was in the hollow over there, and I was saying, push it out, push it out. You got it. Hang on to it, all right? Keep going! Don't give up. All right, and to a large extent, that's what the Christian life is about, and that's what the Book of Hebrews is about. All right, the Book of Hebrews, the writer saying, "Push it out! Push it out! Don't give up! Hang in there!" And so, what we're actually going to talk about today is the hanging in there of the saints, the perseverance of the saints. How does that actually happen? And I think. Uh, You'll see what we're talking about when we read through the scripture. Hebrews 6, verse 1 to 12. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same Earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, when I talked about conflict in the church, I talked about the fact that you've got some issues that are closed handed issues and open handed issues. This is in the open hand, okay? Open handed issues are things that we can disagree on but we don't divide over. Closed handed issues are things that we uh, will disagree on and we will divide over. So, if someone walks in and says, Jesus is not God. That's in the closed hand for us, and we're going to divide with people like that. Okay? Someone walks in and says, Jesus is actually the devil's brother. We're not on that team. All right? We're going to divide over that. We don't agree with that kind of stuff. This scripture is probably the most quoted scripture about the fact that people can lose their salvation. All right? This is the one that I've had quoted to me about the fact that someone can lose their salvation. And it's actually a really terrifying scripture, isn't it? because it's a warning. There's a sense in this scripture that there's actually an impossibility of being saved when you get to a certain point in your life. That is ultra scary. In the Old Testament there was a uh, Moses's helper Aaron had two sons called Hophni and Phinehas. Now what these guys used to do is they would take the offering that was offered to God before it was offered to God and they'd sleep with the women that were serving in the temple. They'd have sex with the women in the temple. It says in 1 Samuel 2, it says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now Eli was very old. Sorry, this is uh, 1 Samuel 2, 22. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Do you think that's serious? I think it's serious, Right? I mean, if Nathan or I started doing that, that would be a major problem for this church, all right? And I hope that you agree with me, (laughs) okay? Very uncool, right? Less than uncool. This is what God says uh, in 1 Samuel 3, And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever, Eli, for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God taking the sacrifice and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Think about that. That's freaky. While they're still alive, God says, that's it. I'm never going to forgive these guys of this house. That's, That's pretty terrifying. Imagine if God said that about you. Imagine if you were Eli or Eli's sons, and God said that about you. It's almost like God saying, even if you somehow um, felt bad about what you did. I mean, the point here—we're going to get to this a little bit later—is that they're actually what God's really saying. I think is that they're never ever going to get to a point where they're genuinely sorry for what they've done. You see, Hebrews six is not just theory. Hebrews 6 is a possibility for every single person. Is is the writer of Hebrews just making up a scripture to scare us so that we don't fall away? I don't think so. But here's the thing. I actually think one of the mechanisms by which God works and and one of the ways by which God causes us to persevere in our faith is, is by warning us that we could make shipwreck of it. We could be lost. And you've got all sorts of different extremes. All right? You've got a, quite a big continuum and most of you know about it. And this may be the only time you ever hear us use the words, but you've got kind of the Calvinistic extreme right up this end, which is kind of saying, look, uh, I'm saved. It doesn't matter uh, what happens. Um, these verses don't apply to me. Then you've kind of got the Arminians down the other end and they're going, yeah, this is exactly what we've been talking about. And uh, it's absolutely possible. And at the end of the day, it ultimately depends upon you and your decision and, and so forth. And so you end up with a whole bunch of people on this spectrum. And the weird thing is, as soon as you start aligning with a particular group, you're probably going to end up in the situation where you're accepting conclusions that are not biblical. All right? A classic example of this would be uh, when people talk about predestination. And they say, well, if people are predestined to be saved, then we shouldn't call them to repent. All right? Yet, it's very clear, I think it's in Acts 17, it says, Paul says, God calls all men everywhere to repent, all right? And so what actually happens, and I'm not talking about predestination today, but I'm just saying using that as an example about how people can grab something and then end up at a non-biblical conclusion, all right? And so you've got to be careful, when I preach about this today, we've just got to be careful to start with the Bible and not start with non-biblical conclusions, all right? Uh, it's just a general rule that I talk about with students all the time and we talk about as a leadership here that you, you need to start in the black and white and you move toward the grey. You don't start in the grey and move toward the black and white. It's just a bad form of arguing and working out the truth of something. All right. So the black and white for us is the Bible. So we start with the Bible and we move toward the grey. And some of the grey we're not going to sort out and we're not going to understand some of the grey. Some people with these verses get massively... Uh, paralyzed by them. They think that these verses refer to them when they... They they probably don't. These verses have led to uh, huge amounts of confusion. But the word, the point of the word, is actually to teach, to help, and to warn, not to actually confuse people. Amen? Isn't that what it's for? You see, in Hebrews, if you actually have a bit of a look at Hebrews, those who have been at the project long enough, know that there's continual warnings about falling away. You've uh, got this person in verse six of Hebrews chapter six who seems to have fallen away. You've got in uh, verse three, verse uh, sorry, chapter three, verse twelve to nineteen, the the Hebrew fathers fell away. Uh, Hebrews chapter two, verse one, the, um, the 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 warning is just be careful that you don't drift. So there's a sense that you could you could drift away. You see, falling away is not theoretical. It's actually a real possibility. And the difficulty here is uh, with Hebrews 6 is that if someone does fall away, you can't get them back. And it's not that it's impossible for that person to come back. It's the sense in Hebrews chapter 6 here that it's impossible for that person to find a true heart of repentance to come back. You see, brokenness is the only way to approach God. Humble and a contrite heart, death to self and a broken spirit that's what God loves. And I would put it to you that uh, Hofney and phineas it was impossible for them to get that. The person never finds a repentant spirit. And so I'll just say to you at this point in time, before we get into the nuts and bolts, don't take repentance for granted. You see, repentance means to spin 180 degrees and head in the other direction. Don't take it for granted. Most of you would know the story of the prodigal son who uh, gets his dad's inheritance before his dad dies. He goes away, He ends up feeding pigs. And there's this classic line in Luke chapter 15 verse 17 where it says, but when he came to himself. Now, whoever decides to come to themselves? Like you don't. Whoever decides. At what point in time last night did you decide to wake up? Or this morning, did you decide to wake up? See, you don't. You just don't do a lot. It's stuff that kind of happens. And and most of us would know that there's been times in your life where you've had this moment of incredible clarity where you've seen yourself clearly, or the clearest you've ever seen. You just don't... That's like a precious vase, and you don't want to smash that thing because those times don't come along that, that often. You see, once someone hardens their heart, they get stuck. And if God's speaking to you, if he's speaking to you in your life, and you feel some conviction coming from him, oh, you just better cuddle that thing like a teddy bear. True? Because he's just being really kind to you. Because you're in a mess, and he wants to just help you out of your mess, and you're just going to need to look at the mess a little bit, and he wants you to turn around from it. But often what happens, or at least in uh, Hebrews, we actually see, like in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, the, the, uh, the fathers, the, the Israelite fathers hardened their hearts and they got stuck. They wanted their own way. Be careful about having that attitude. Don't harden your heart and don't say, I will have my own way. Because you know what happens is you ultimately in the end, what Hebrews 6 is saying is that you become like the devil and his angels, you get hardened and you'll end up in the same place as them. And you'll end up in a place that you can't help it. The word, I was listening to one preacher and he said, it's like the word impossible is written on your forehead. Don't take for granted God's kindness in drawing you. You don't want to be the person that's got impossible written on their forehead, impossible to ever be saved. Now some of you go, well what, how do I know when I'm over that line? I was, I don't know. But there's a line somewhere. And that's kind of the freaky thing about the warning is there actually is a line. And you could go over that and you could never, ever repent. And it's right for us. And I think this is why the author of Hebrews is writing it. It's right for us to have a healthy fear of this. You know, and the reason why this is right for us is because this says something really significant about God. You don't mess with him. You take him seriously. You, you, you embrace him and you welcome him in his tenderness when he comes to you and he shows you that there's stuff in your life that's not right. And you don't see that as condemnation and conviction and, and really depressing, but you actually say, God, thank you so much. I, in my life, have moments where I like to sit in the cesspit. And we all do, don't we? And God says, well, I don't... I don't my sons and my daughters don't sit in cesspits. They sit, they sit at the table with me. Or they sit with me. That's what they do. They sit at my, my right hand, or it says that somewhere in the New Testament. I'm not sure whether it's right or left, but they sit with me. Now, the difficulty of all of this is you've got scriptures that go in the other direction. All right? And now I'm going to paint you into a corner. All right? And then hopefully offer you a, a solution. You see, either salvation is permanent or Jesus is a liar. Listen to what Jesus said in John 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. You see, eternal life is either eternal or it's not eternal life. All right? What about this one? This is another one from Jesus in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Listen to the uh, the absolute nature of these promises by Jesus. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And this one, we all probably know Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But if something comes along that snatches you away, then that actually is not for your good. You see the problem? On the one hand, you've got Hebrews 6 saying you can lose it. On the other hand, you've got all these other promises in the Bible that are saying, well, everything is going to work for your good if you love God. But if something comes away that takes you away, that's not working for your good. Here's another one from Philippians 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to, to fruition or completion. He's going to complete it. God's saving work never aborts. So if you can't lose your salvation, then why do so many interpret Hebrews 6 this way? That's a bit small, isn't it? Hopefully you can see that. I just want to run through this, and uh, I'll, I'll just give you... These are these are my thoughts, these are our thoughts. Um, in Hebrews 4, verse 4 to 6, if you've got your Bibles here and you can't read that, it'd be worth you opening them up, because I'm just going to go bit by bit through Hebrews 4, verse 6. And um, Honestly, let's be honest, it sounds like a Christian's losing their salvation. Anyone agree with me on that? That's what's going on, okay? Here's the evidence, all right? In 6, verse 4, it says Christians... Uh, well, in a sense, Christians are enlightened, all right? Maybe I'll just read the scripture up there. for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, all right? Are Christians enlightened people? Yes, they are. Excellent. So if you actually get into some scriptures about how Christians are enlightened, you can go to somewhere like uh, Ephesians 5 verse 8, uh, where it says, uh, For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in, in the Lord, walk as children of light. Then you get on to the next bit up there in Hebrews 6, where he says, This person has tasted, or these people have tasted, the heavenly gift. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15, talks about Christians uh, tasting the, the inexpressible gift of Jesus and of grace. They understand the free gift of God and, uh, and righteousness, and they understand the scriptures. You look at it and you go, for all money, it's got to be Christians, all right? And then the next point, it says, uh, shared in the Holy Spirit, all right? The Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 1, verse 13 to 14, is the guarantee of our inheritance, all right? Until we uh, acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then it goes on to say up there in Hebrews chapter 6 that these people have tasted the goodness of the word of God. Now, you can't even be a Christian without tasting the impact of the word of God, can you? Then it goes on to say they've tasted the powers of the age to come. Now, this is not just a fan, all right? This is the supernatural power and the blowing of the Holy Spirit. And this person somehow has been a partaker of it. Now, at the end, it says they've fallen away. Well, the very phrase itself, fallen away, makes it sound like they made it and then they lost it. And we ask the question... Or maybe I'll make the, the suggestion to you, maybe the reason why it sounds so much like a Christian is because it was. Does everyone see the bind that we're in here? You've got these incredible promises over here and then you've got a, uh, Hebrews 6 and you just kind of go, well, how do we put them together? Well, I actually think the writer of Hebrews puts them together for you. And I'm going to suggest that Now. What's really interesting about this up here is at no point in time does the writer of Hebrews actually say that this person's regenerated, born again, justified, that they've got the righteousness of Christ. Some of the typical theological language that you would expect to have said about a Christian kind of is, is absent from up here, okay? Let's just go on to the next section. It's actually verse 7, 8 and 9 that give us the greatest clue as to what this guy's on about here, okay? And often when I have this scripture quoted to me or when I've spoken with people about this scripture, they only ever quote the first six verses, right? And I actually think it's 7, 8, and 9 that help you to understand what he's up to. Here's 7, 8, and 9. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Notice right at the end of verse 9 there, what does he say? He says, we expect better things from you, things that actually belong to salvation. Now that's one of your hints, all right? The writer of Hebrews has said, there's something missing. It looks like they've got it all, but there's actually something missing. If they were actually truly saved, you would actually see something else. And that's why he kind of says there, we're sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. This uh, writer is really confident that the people that he's writing to are not in the category he's just talked about. All right? He's saying, we think that it's actually going to be different for you. He's confident that his people that he's writing to are not going to make shipwreck of their faith. And he started with this idea in mind at the start of the chapter, I believe. How are you going? Yeah, okay. You see, what he, I think what he's doing is he's writing this warning to the people because he knows that it's the warning that's going to help them to keep fighting and to keep going. It's, it's going to be the warning that's going to help them to hang in there. And the really interesting thing is, if you look up on the screen or in your Bibles there at uh, Hebrews 6, it's mostly verse 7 and 8, he actually brings up a little bit of a parable. Now, if you pay attention to what he's actually saying in this parable, you notice that the difference is actually the type of land or the type of soil. All right? Which is another hint as to what this guy actually thinks. He's actually saying the people who have fallen away are the ones that were the bad soil. They didn't become the bad soil. The rain landed on them and the good soil responded and the bad soil, in a sense, produced thorns and thistles, which is an indicator, I think, that he is expecting that the people, or he's instructing the people in his writing that the ones that fall away are the ones that aren't the real deal. Now, at this point in time, probably for you, you just probably think, oh, jeez, all right, well, I know lots of people like this. And you just, and automatically you start coming up your head, well, what about that one, and what about this one, and what about that one? Here's the thing, like if you come up to me at the end and you, and you say, what about, I knew someone like this, are they really saved? And I just go, I don't know. I don't know whether they're really saved. And, and you know what? You, you, don't, you don't really know as an observer. I think this is really what the Bible's talking about when it talks about judge not lest you be judged. It's, it's actually not our place to determine whether someone... Is a true Christian or not? But it is our place to call everyone everywhere to repent. Now, is it possible that there's some people that you know, and it's almost like an injection, an inoculation, you get a little bit of the disease and then you build up antibodies to it. Is it possible that there's people that you know who've just got a little bit of Jesus, enough to be immune to him, and they're never going to repent? possible. It's possible because Hebrews 6 says it's possible, I think. But here's, here's the thing, like you can end up at a non-biblical conclusion if you actually say, well, I'm not, I think they're one of those and so I'm not going to call them to repent. <laughs> Alright? Yes, you do. And you keep calling them to repent and you just go, well, does it mean I keep praying for them? Like, yes, you do. Alright? Because the word's very clear. Keep praying for them. Alright? Keep loving them. You don't know. You don't know whether they're the real deal or they're not the real deal. Um, and I'll tell you, I reckon when we get to heaven, there's going to be a bunch of people who we didn't think were the real deal that were, and a bunch of we thought were that aren't there. And you just go, well, how did they miss out on their ticket? And you just go, I don't know. All right? But there was a ticket, all right, and they didn't, they didn't accept it. You see, the writer of Hebrews is really keen to tell you that Jesus is great and he's got a great salvation. This is in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. But you know what? The great salvation is only as great as the Saviour. Amen? If the Saviour's not that good, I mean, you you go to the beach, if you went up to Calandra and you went out and you got caught in a rip, right, and you just go, that's cool, because I know these lifesavers are really good because you're you're in between the flags, okay, because you're being good. Alright, and you've got your hand up and you're waving, alright, and the idiots on the beach are waving back, but you can see the lifesavers at the top are getting their gear ready and they're coming out, right, and you're just going, you've gone down for a few times and you're just kind of going, well, I just need to be saved right, right now, right, so they come out on their uh, rubber dinghy or whatever, alright, and, and they drag you in the boat and you just go, this is a great salvation, and then on the way back in, they just start doing doughies in the ocean and they think it's a really cool thing. You fall off the back, they don't even know, they get back in, and, and you drown, all right? That's not a great salvation. Are you with me on that? Here's the thing. If the Saviour can't actually get it done, if He's not actually going to carry you the whole way through, it's not that great. And honestly, I, I'll, be, I'll be 100% brutally honest here, I fear for myself if my salvation depends upon me. Because it's, it's, it's not going to be nice, all right? And honestly, I'll be honest with you, I don't even want that pressure. All right? Now, I know I need to persevere, and we'll get to that in a minute, right? But I don't want the pressure of of me having to make sure I keep going and that it all depends upon that. You see, John 6, verse 37 says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never, ever cast out. That is a beautiful promise. You repent, he never, ever rejects anyone who repents, who turns. He accepts all. It doesn't matter who they are. It, it could be Dennis Ferguson. If he repented, and I don't know whether he did, but if he did and he genuinely repented, God would not reject him. He would welcome him in. John 6 verse 39 says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. He does, he's, you're not going to fall off the rubber ducky, right? That's what he's saying. I'm going to make sure you don't fall off the rubber ducky. And that's a sweet, sweet promise. And then in verse 11 of Hebrews, the author goes on to say this, and this is the reason why he's done it. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. This is what he wants. This is why he's telling you about them so that you won't be like them, so that you'll have hope and you'll be earnest and you'll be serious and you'll keep working really hard and you'll draw in close to Christ and every time God shows you something, you repent of it and you turn and He purifies you and He makes you more like Him and it all depends upon Him and you're just working really, really hard with Him and it just ends really well. You make it to the end. You don't get lost. You see, full assurance of hope comes from earnestness. These are really, really strong words from the writer of Hebrews about how you get full hope, you be earnest, you hear the warning and you listen to it. You see, the actual goal, this is the weird thing about Hebrews 6, I think the writer of Hebrews wants people to walk away from Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, more assured of where they're going rather than less assured. But somehow, because of all our theological debates, it just ends up malfunctioning. See, what's true of the man who's not saved or the woman who's not saved? They fall away. If you're drifting and you know you're drifting, you should fear. You should fear. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. This is the point of the whole letter of Hebrews is get on track with God. If you're beginning to exchange sin and disobedience, you're exchanging other things for God, be very afraid. (laughs) Be afraid. Be very afraid. But listen, if you're not in that category, if you're sitting there and you're going, well, I don't want to do that. Like when I say to you, you're exchanging sin for Jesus, you're exchanging other things for Jesus, and you go, I don't want to do that. I'm just going, well, how good is that? Right? Now, I reckon that's a really good sign that you're in the right slot. If you're on the inside, you're going, oh, man, I just really want to be rid of sin. I really do want to follow Christ. I don't want to fall away. He's my only hope. See, if you're thinking things like that, you can be confident that God's at work in you. You see, you keep fighting. This is what I think the writer of Hebrews is saying. If you're truly saved, you keep fighting and you don't give up. Through many toils and snares, I still want Christ. Amen? You see, there's this classic... I've been listening to some of the Dynamics of Biblical Change uh, lectures that the, uh, the guys are listening to who are studying it. And, and I love this analogy that David Powlison gave. He said, it's like he said, if you get on the beach, he said, and you're going really, really fast, but you're running parallel to the water, he goes, it doesn't matter how fast you go, you're never going to make the water. He said, but you know what? And he said, if you're on your hands and knees and you're facing toward the water and you're just like millimeter by millimeter slowly crawling toward the water, you're eventually going to get there. So the issue is not ultimately about how fast you're going. The issue is about what direction you're facing. And if you're facing the direction of Christ and you're saying, I'm just inching my way toward, or millimeters by millimeters, maybe a millimeter a month, be encouraged. I think the writer of Hebrews would say, be encouraged, all right? God would have you get a little bit quicker. Amen? Amen. It'd have you be a bit quicker, but the issue is actually not your speed. The issue is what direction you're actually facing. Yet if you're slipping, fear. Hear the warning. And there was a, uh, the example in, uh, in the Gospels uh, where Jesus invited the disciples. He says, if this is too hard for you, you can go away. And what do they say? Well, we've got nowhere else to go. Honestly, I think if you have that kind of response in your heart, you just go, well, I've got nothing else but Jesus, really. I've got a whole bunch of other stuff, but it's not really going to help me that much, and he's kind of my only hope. You're in a good place. But beware when you give in to sin. Beware when you begin to abandon Christ for anything else. Fear and run back to him. Battle with sin and seek Christ on a daily basis. On a daily basis. You can fall seven times a day. You can fall 77 times a day. And if you keep running to Christ, you'll make it. Listen to this beautiful promise at the end of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, verse 20 to 21. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, listen to this, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. This is what he's going to do. Now it raises the issue, you just go, well if I have a blowout on one day, what does that mean? Well it probably means that the pantry was full and you didn't go to the pantry. Alright? Because he said he will equip you for everything that you need to do his will. But once you cross the threshold, God's saying, he'll never grant you the heart that you need to return again. I mean, there's a a scripture in uh, Hebrews, in Timothy, I should say, where it talks about how God perhaps might grant the gift of repentance. And I think we've just got to get a little bit more of a sense that repentance is a gift than what we currently have. Why is the threshold, why is there a line because people dishonor Christ. People cross the line when they they see Christ here and then see disobedience here. Here's Christ, here's your idol. You've been enlightened. Jesus has actually shown you what he's like and you choose something over him and it dishonors him. And you know what God's kind of saying to people like that is, he says, if you keep choosing something over my son, you will never ever have him. And that that is pretty terrifying but if you were god would you do that i think probably a lot of us would god has offered to us something so incredibly precious and when we turn for something else continually 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 can you see that it just becomes a hardening and a hardening and a hardening and who knows we could go over the line Hebrews 6.6 says uh, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. But if you love Christ and you wouldn't trade him for anything, you're in. Be confident. You're on your way to heaven. But here's the catch. Truly saved people don't ever stop fighting. There's a scripture in 1 John that actually says uh, they went out from us And the fact that they went out from us actually showed that they were not of us. So there was an an issue with the the quality of the ground. Here's a couple of uh, scriptures out of Hebrews 3, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You notice the tense there? You make it in the present by holding on in in the future by holding on in the present. And that's the evidence. The fact that you're holding on in the present is evidence that you're going to make it in the end. All right? That's, uh, to me, I think that's that's pretty clearly what it's saying. It verifies your participation in Christ. Perseverance is not a payment for getting into Christ. It's proof that you're in Christ. And then Hebrews 10, verse 14, "...for by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." See, this is the thing. I think a truly saved person never ever gives up fighting. Is the perfect offering for the person who's saved, who's truly saved, has it fully been paid? Yes, it has. All right. But you notice in this uh, verse here, in 10 verse 14, he's saying, "God has, God says, I've perfected those who are being perfected." So the being perfected has got to be happening at the same time as. They are perfected. It's, it's that whole thing we talked about a while ago at the project here that the Bible often speaks about becoming what you are. I'm going to finish. When I was preparing this, I had a bit of a chat with Diff the other day. He goes, so what's the point of it? You know, What's the point of this stuff in Hebrews 6? And it was a good question. All right? And I think I had a bit of an answer for him, but it made me think some more about it. I just think, well, what is the point of it? You know, the point of it, I think, is this, is that God's way of keeping us from falling is by enticing us with his promises and sabering us with his warnings. You see that in the Bible? God kind of does that all the time. He says, warning, promise. All right? And that, I actually think, that mechanism in Hebrews chapter 6 is the mechanism by which people keep striving and keep fighting. The point of the promises of God is to engage our affections... God and for his glory and the point of the warnings is to disengage our affections for the glory of this world the glory of the sin and at the end of the day God's promises are about making our mouths water at the prospect of infinite happiness I said to one of my boys the other day we were just talking I said won't it be good when we can just sit down and just have a chat with, with Jesus he just goes yeah totally It'll be good, we'll just sit down on the bed or sit on a chair with him. Or, I don't know, we'll just sit somewhere with him, we get to have a chat. But yet the warnings are there to make our hearts tremble at the prospect of falling under the wrath of God. You see, you may not have fully noticed it, some of you probably might have, but the language actually changes. He starts off quite personal and quite first person, and when he talks about it, verse 4 to 6, when he goes into that, it becomes kind of third person. And then when he comes out of that, it goes back into first person. He wouldn't be warning the people if it was too late for them, would he? He wouldn't be warning them if they'd actually walked across that threshold. He wouldn't be warning them if they'd been inoculated to Jesus and they were never, ever going to be able to repent. But he warns them because it's a mechanism by which God makes sure that people keep pushing on. And it's a real warning. I had this uh, saying, I heard someone say this a while ago about their kids and uh, I thought that's, that's really true and it's so true in a spiritual sense and it's happened heaps of times for us. When I walk across a busy road with one of my sons, I hold his hand and I'm better at holding his hand than he is at holding mine because often about halfway, parents who are or even anyone who's held onto a kid's hand. You know that sometimes you walk places and they just their hand goes limp, right? So all of a sudden it's turned into a dead mullet, all right? And uh, they're not holding on anymore. Now, if if I say to my son, as soon as you let go, I'm gonna let go. And we're in the middle of a busy highway, that's gonna be a problem, right? But the truth is that I don't. And I, I think and I believe and some people some of you will have differences on on this theology, but I just want to say to you, I, I believe that God's like that. I, I, I believe He's very good at holding onto your hand, because we all know we can probably all sit here and just go, I, I think I can identify times where I let go, or at least my hand went limp, and He didn't let go of me, and He He got me up, He dusted me off. I felt I face planted. I was blood was coming out of my nose I was just a wreck I had bruises all over me scratches and he picked me up dusted me off fixed me up he said keep going keep fighting and and he gave me what I needed he gave me everything that I need to do his will Hebrews 13 and I think if you don't if you disagree with everything else believe in a God like that yeah that he gives you everything that you need to do his will the pantry is full Alright? And tomorrow, there's going to be mercies that are brand new for tomorrow. You don't get them today, which is why you shouldn't be anxious about tomorrow, because he hasn't given you what you, what you need yet. Alright? So get up in the morning and know that his mercies are new every morning, and the pantry's full, and he wants to help you to do everything that you need to do tomorrow. He's not going to help you today to do tomorrow stuff, because you haven't got there yet. All right, But tomorrow, he'll help you, every single time. And when you can't hold on anymore or you feel like you just don't know where the stuff is that he's got for you to help you, he will hold on to you. He'll defend you. And he'll make sure that you make it. Why don't you pray with me? God, did you say tender and kind and those who know you even if they don't agree with half of what I said today or three quarters or whatever we can stand here and just say you're a tender beautiful loving God you're kind and there's so much of rudeness and anger and rage and brutality in this world. This world desperately needs a tender, compassionate, loving, supportive, strong, firm God. And God, I pray that this morning that uh, your warnings would not malfunction, that your warnings would not inspire us to desert you but would make us flee toward you. Make us abandon the things that we swap for you. God, I pray that my words wouldn't malfunction and any words that are not yours, that they would just uh, be blown away like chaff, and uh, that we'd be encouraged. Thanks for putting hard things to understand in your word. If we could understand everything that you said and everything about you, we'd be smarter than you. But we're not. And we just say that today. We're not smarter than you, God, and we just need to learn from you. Please teach us. And please hold on to us. Please help us. Amen.